Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Do you pray with me as we begin? Father, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you together. We thank you for your word that teaches us, that encourages us, that guides us as we learn what it is to follow Jesus as his disciples. Lord, we need your help every day. We come to you together as your people, asking that your spirit would teach us through his word. We would apply it to our lives. So God, give us ears that are able to hear, hearts that are willing to understand and obey. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The carpet where I'm standing right now has been worn down over time. and The color has been stripped away and the threads are showing through. It's been worn down by the many faithful pastors and preachers who have served from this spot right here. They've preached God's word. They've made known the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And it's become worn down throughout the storied history of this place that has stood since the 1860s. First worship services were held in this place in December of 1860. We moved here in June of 2020, one month after the closing of the Beacon Reformed Church. And that was a sign of God's faithfulness to us. You may remember that the spring of 2020 was an interesting time for us. Everything was shut down, and we had been previously worshiping in the basement of the Elks Lodge here in Beacon. Well, that was not ideal for an airborne pandemic because there was virtually no ventilation and we were all packed together like sardines, which is great unless we can get each other sick by breathing on each other. And so we weren't sure how we were going to be able to reopen. And God provided this space for us to be able to come in and worship and be distanced and wear masks. And this became our new home. We've been here now three years from June of 2020 through the end of May 2023. And as I think about the close of our time together in this space, as we prepare for the next chapter, I've been wrestling with some questions just in this week of preparing for right now. I've been wrestling with the question of did we honor this space well over our three years? Did we honor one another well? We honored the Lord well. Have we honored the legacy of the people who worship here generation after generation after generation? Have we honored them well? I think we have. I hope we have. I pray that we have. Because those stories, this history, it matters. This space and what it was designed for matters. 
A couple years ago, in April of 2021, there was a presentation by the Beacon Historical Society about the life of this church. And it was presented by one of the members of the Beacon Historical Society. She actually works for them. Um, her name is Emily, I think I'm getting this right, Mernane. And uh, I, I listened to that as I was preparing for this. I wanted to share a little bit of the history of this space and our place in it. John Peter DeWitt was one of the great leaders of what was at that time Fishkill Landing in the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, there was a Reformed church that had been built in Fishkill early in the 18th century. But as Fishkill Landing and as Mat Matawan, uh, I think that's how you say it, uh, as Fishkill Landing and Matawan continued to grow, there was a need for a church here in Fishkill Landing. And so John Peter DeWitt proposed the founding of a Reformed church here in 1813. It was the first church founded in those twin villages, Fishkill Landing and Matawan, that would later become Beacon. And the church began, and began to grow. And we get snippets of what happened in the life of the church in the 19th century. We don't have a lot of information, but a lot of it that we do have is firsthand accounts of members who were here. And uh, there was a Mrs. Samuel Verplank who wrote down a bunch of stories, and there was some humor in her stories. She tells a story once of being in worship in the old building, 50s, uh, so not here, but in the old building. Um, she was in worship, and she was struggling to see the pulpit because there was a really large man that was sitting right in front of her. And she was bothered the whole time that he's sitting there, and she can't really see. And it wasn't until after worship, when she wanted to talk to this man, that she realized that the large man sitting in front of her was the former President Millard Fillmore, who was here to see a friend of his who was a judge in the area. I don't think she snapped at him the way she initially wanted to. Um, it continued to grow until 1859, when it was decided they would need a new home. They were outgrowing their church building. They needed to build a new place. They wanted to build where they were. The old place is right across the street from where we're sitting right now. So they, and they had all of this land. So they said, let's build a new home for our church. In 1859, it was decided it's time for a building project. And there was a local, um, there was a local architect here by the name of Frederick Clark Withers, who was pretty well-renowned in the mid-19th century. He'd been building buildings all over the place. There's still some here in Beacon, not just this building, but there's a house here that's built by him, uh, another church. I think it's now called Calvary Presbyterian Church. That was built by him in Newburgh. Um, so he'd building all over the place, including in New York City, uh, the prison called The Tombs, built by Frederick Clark Withers. And he decided he was going to build a new church building for the Reformed Church, and he decided to do it in a very controversial style. Uh, this is a unique building. It's built with a lot of Gothic architecture elements, and he wanted to put a big bell tower right in the center of it. And he did initially, until it realized that bell tower was going to fall over and kill somebody. So they tore it down, and that's why the bell resides where it is now. But what was most controversial about this was its color. They were going to build a brick church. That's not new. What was weird is he wanted to build it with three different color bricks, which is a huge no-no in the 19th century Reformed church for some reason. I don't know why. And uh, he wanted to build red brick, yellow brick, black brick. Well, fortunately for the Reformed church, 
the black brick was unavailable. So he just had to deal with red brick and yellow brick. And that's why if you go outside and you look, there's two-color brick all over the place. It was a distinctive style that he wanted to use for the building of this place. And he was able to build it, and he had the support of the pastor at the time. He was only a pastor for about five years. Uh, Dr. Soydem is his name. And he was a pastor from about 15... Uh, or not 15, 1858, I think it was, till about 1863. Just these few years. But those few years were massive in the life of the Reformed Church in Beacon. Because not only did they build a new building here, not only did they have the support of the pastor, but the same year that this was founded, the same year that they had the initial services, not, not the initial services, but the official services, Initial services started in 1860, but in 1861, they have their very first services as the official opening of this new building, and that's also the same year that the Civil War begins. And he was known, this pastor, as being a vocal proponent proponent in favor of the ward and slavery. He was a visiting preacher in the Methodist Church here, and he said this in 1861, we would like to preserve peace And we would love to have it without bloodshed if we could, without brother fighting against brother. But when the question comes before us, shall we submit to the promulgation of slavery and the disrepute of our government, what shall we say? Send slavery to the bottomless pit and let the government remain forever. This was the heartbeat of the pastor at the time. That the church was a place that would stand for justice for all people and for the care of the oppressed anywhere they may be found. But he was young. He'd only been a pastor for about three months before he began his call here in Beacon. He was called the boy preacher by a bunch of congregants who weren't quite sure about this young kid who'd come in and started preaching to them. And the more he became a proponent of ending slavery, the louder his abolitionist stance became the more uncomfortable the congregation became. And it kind of came to a head when he hired in another preacher, an abolitionist by the name of Henry Ward Beecher, the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, to come and preach from this very spot. And the congregation was already nervous, but now they're really freaked out because they're bringing in, at the time, considered a radical abolitionist. And one church member actually threatened the pastor with, quote-unquote, unspecified harm (laughs) if Beecher came and preached. But Dr. Soydem went forward, and Beecher did speak, and it was wall-to-wall in here, people who wanted to hear him. And it was so positively received, and Beecher was such a powerful preacher against the evils of slavery that the very congregant who had threatened the pastor came to him in his office and said, hey, when can that guy come back? In 1913, same year as the church's centennial, Fishkill Landing, the twin villages of Fishkill Landing and Matawan, they actually merged and the city of Beacon was born. And that began a period in the church's history of struggle. Really, from the 30s to the 50s, they couldn't get a pastor to come. 
this was kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and they were trying to get pastors from New Brunswick Seminary or from down in the city, but everybody wanted to go to the city. That's where the action was. They couldn't get a pastor to come up here and spend time in Beacon. And they, they struggled through that. They, they struggled through the losing of a gravesite. A gravesite. A founding father was buried here. His name was Few. And he was a Georgian founding father, but he died here when visiting his daughter-in-law's family. And so they buried him in the cemetery of the Reformed Church. And in 1973, there was a huge campaign from Georgia saying, why would a founding father be buried in a hick town like Beacon? And they had him removed, and his remains were taken to Georgia, which was a real blow because that was a point of pride for the Beacon Reformed Church. The congregation struggled for many years to remain faithful here, and they did. They continued meeting time and time and time again until the congregation dwindled to the point that they were unable to sustain worship. And that happened in May of 2020. We arrived one month later. We, Goodwill Church, are a footnote, if that, in the history of this building. We are the final moments of the final note of the symphony that is the worship life of this building. Final note that was held just a little longer than anyone had anticipated. And if we're honest, nobody's really going to remember what we do here today. No one, that is, except our Heavenly Father. He sees. He knows. I believe He is pleased that we're here together enjoying the final worship service that will ever be held in this space. Unless the Lord changes the trajectory of this building and another church comes in, this is it for this space that was designed to the glory of God for the worship of God. Perhaps one day more worship will happen in here. I pray that it will. But we want to remember together the story of all that came before of the many families who sat in the pews that we sit in today, of the children who were baptized in this space, of the sacrament that gave grace to people as they came to the table, of the sermons that extolled the gospel and lifted up the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We want to remember the stories that are held within these walls and the stories that are held within these pews. The death of the Reformed Church in Beacon is not unique. It's the result of dwindling membership, harsh economic conditions, poor leadership from time to time. But churches aren't designed to live forever. They're just not. Churches have a life cycle. They're born, they live, they die. That is how a church goes. And we have the privilege of experiencing both ends of that journey in the first four plus years of our life together. We were together at the birth of a new church in that Elks Lodge on Palm Sunday of 2019. We began a new church here in Beacon. We were here when the Beacon Reformed Church closed down in 2020, and we are here for the final worship service to take place in this building. In four short years, we have seen the beginning and the end. And we want to think about what that means for us going forward. We want to reflect on that. We want to allow that to inform the future of our life together as Goodwill Church. There is a sadness in the moment, for sure. 
There's also a caution in this story. There's a caution to us in this. Our church, Goodwill Church, is a mortal church. It will not live forever unless the Lord returns, in which case he'll be the one to shut it down. No, our church is very much so at risk, like any other church, of not living very long. Our church is wholly dependent on the cultivation of this church by the members of this church. It is up to each one of you to cultivate, maintain, care for, pour into the fellowship life of our church together. And I'm not talking about the new home that we're going to be celebrating next week. You may be thinking this is a bit of a downer of a sermon. It is. This is a sad moment. We celebrate next week. But when we get to that next place, there is no guarantee. That church will thrive. That building will be a good home to us if we are committed to the work of the church. And if we do not allow the busyness of the rest of our lives to get in the way and to distract us from what is our primary calling, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We do that most effectively when we are gathered together in worship and when we fellowship with one another. When we do the work of the ministry and we love our neighbors and we love our community. That actually is the focus of the prophet Haggai. It was striking to me that Haggai and this particular weekend line up together because it lines up well with the end of a worship life in a building, but it also lines up well with Pentecost Sunday. We're not going to ignore Pentecost. We're going to talk about that, especially toward the end of this sermon. But let's look together at the opening chapter of Haggai. Haggai is only two chapters long. It's written toward the end of uh, the exile. People are returning Ezra has already led a group to rebuild the altar. Worship has begun again. Nehemiah will soon be on his way to rebuild the wall around the city. But Haggai is concerned because the people of God have lost their focus already. They have shifted their focus away from the temple of the Lord and onto their own situations, their own problems, their own needs. Let's see what Haggai has to say. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Haggai speaking to the governor who's in charge and the high priest who's in charge of worship. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. They had been dealing with some real problems. They'd been struggling. And that meant that all of their focus was on their needs. We've got to build our houses. We've got to plant our fields. We've got to make sure that we're doing okay. And they began building houses for themselves. And Haggai's saying, listen, they're even paneled houses. You build the nice things for yourself. But you keep wondering why you can't seem to get ahead. It's because you're neglecting the house of worship. It's because you're neglecting the temple. Now, this isn't because the Lord was homeless. God's not sitting there going, where's my house? Why haven't you built me something to live in? Of course, God is not contained by a house built with human hands. But he does care about the hearts and the priorities of the people. And the hearts of the, and the priorities of the people were demonstrating that they cared a lot more about their own comfort and care than about the worship life that was supposed to be at the core of who they were as a people. They wanted to make sure that they were okay in this world but they were neglecting the very reason they exist, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They were neglecting worship. Yes, the sacrifice was able to be done by the priest, but the gathering of the people where they could come in and worship together, that was being neglected because of all the other things that needed to be done. There are a whole lot of things that will keep us busy after we move. They will. Life makes us busy. Career and family, travel schedules. I mean, if, if you were to take a look at the Ortega family calendar, uh, you may cry about it a little bit. I know we have when we've looked at the calendar. The amount of things that are going on, it seems, all at the same time. And yet, the busyness of our lives is not permission. It does not grant us permission to neglect the work of the gathered people, which is worship. You see, in the evangelical church, we have often prioritized the work of sharing our faith. We said the number one thing we're here to do is to evangelize, the Great Commission. Unfortunately, the Bible does not tell us that that's the number one thing we're supposed to do. The number one thing we're supposed to do is make disciples. Well, how are disciples made? Through worship. Through worship. In the first three centuries of the church, there is tract after tract and book after book written about what the gathered community is supposed to look like, how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to worship, and not a single book written about evangelism. Because the primary focus is worship. And the outflow of worship, of encountering the living God as the people of God, the natural outflow of that kind of joy is to go to your neighbors and say, you've got to have some of this. But when we get the priority out of whack, when we are prioritizing too much what happens out there rather than what happens in here, then even the good things that we're called to do can distract us from the primary call of the Christian which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
We are the worshiping community. This is our reason for existence. And there will be many, many things that will distract you from that purpose. Don't allow it to happen. And this is a good time for me to remind you as we go into this new home of exactly what this community is. You are the church who will make that building sing for its community. You are the members of Goodwill Church. And people may not understand this, but as a pastor, I am not a member of this church. I'm a member of the presbytery, but I'm not a member of this church. I serve the family. I am a servant to the family, but I'm not actually a part of the family, if that makes sense. I'm here to care for you. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to do everything I can as a pastor, but the success of the church has absolutely nothing to do with me and everything to do with the people and their love for the Lord. I'm here to serve that, but the success of Goodwill Church Beacon in our new home is wholly dependent on you. I'm going to do everything I can to help. I'm going to preach my shoes off every week. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to serve you, but this is yours. So use it well. Do well with this home that the Lord is giving us. The people heard the prophecy of Haggai and the governor of Judah and the high priest. They obeyed. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. The people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. They obeyed. And I love the promise in response to the people's willingness to hear God speak and then respond with obedience What God says to them is, I am with you. You see, churches live and die based not only on the obedience of the people, but on the presence of God in their midst. Because here can be another ditch as we move, another thing for us to be aware of. We can be so focused on making sure our worship life is right that we leave God out of it. Really tight liturgy the right balance of contemporary music and hymns, the right decoration, the right cleanliness, the right whatever. We can be so focused on the building and making sure worship is great that we forget prayer, that we forget compassion for neighbors, that we forget loving one another and bearing one another's burdens and the messiness of church, of the community of saints bound together by the Spirit where we confess our sins, where we bear one another's burdens, where we forgive one another. The one another's of the scriptures lived out in the community. Because it is in that that we can see God with us. This is what the Holy Spirit is. He is God with us in each and every one of his people, working through each and every one of his people to make us a people singular together. Together. 
bound together in Christ. This is who we are. There was a promise given after the building of the temple, after the work began again. There's a promise that the Lord would inhabit this temple with his very glory. Let's look at the promise and then let's consider how this connects us into the New Testament and into our lives together. The Lord stirred up the spirits of, oh, sorry. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? There's a remarkable thing that happens. Some of us toured the new building together, but when you come from here, in this place, with all of its history and its big arches and its strange canvas ceiling and all of the things that are this building. And then you go to our new place, you're going to go, this is small. Basically two rooms, one on top, one on bottom. It's not much to look at. doesn't have the big towering steeple of this place. It's got a little steeple for a little neighborhood. And you're going to be like, oh man, this is... This just isn't as nice, or this isn't as cool as the place we just left. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, declares the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now Haggai continues, but we're going to stop here for today. Because the promise that the latter glory will fill the house is one that will give us the hope and the energy we need to do really great things in the weeks, months, and years to come in our new home. Because you see, the temple, the temple was a stand-in. It was a shadow of something greater that is to come, of a greater house of the Lord, a house of the Lord that we, each and every one of us, make up. For we are living stones built around a cornerstone, who is Christ. And the glory of the Lord fills his people specifically through the agency and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and he fills the house. He fills us. And we know that it's the Holy Spirit because there's only one place in the entire New Testament where Haggai is quoted. It's in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, 
Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's Haggai. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order the things that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, initially, this can sound like the end of all things. The removal of those things that have been made and the establishment of those things have been made without human hands, those things that are unshakable. But look where the writer of Hebrews, or this was a sermon, where the preacher takes this, not to the end, but instead, let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And what happens at Pentecost? The kingdom arrives. The Holy Spirit births the church. The kingdom of God exists. We are in now what's called the latter days. We've been there since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are in the kingdom as it is, not in its fullness, but in its power. The kingdom of God is here, and it cannot be shaken. Let's let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So we have here the shaking of the things that are, the replacing of those things with the kingdom of God, and even fire imagery that takes our mind to the event that took place mere weeks after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. and It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And this verse, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There they are in the upper room, the same one that they had had the Lord's Supper with. And the room is filled with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And the people are shaken. And then they are filled with the Spirit. And they are never shaken again. You see what Pentecost has done. It has birthed a new kingdom. The former things are gone. The new things are now. We are no longer the old men and women that we were in the flesh. But in Christ, we are new creatures standing firm in Christ, guaranteed to never be shaken because it is God who holds on to us. Our Father, we His children. He holds us so that no matter what happens in this world, we will not be shaken. So what Haggai is prophesying about is not just the second temple that will be built after Solomon's temple. He's prophesying about the people of God filled with glory from on high by the Holy Spirit that will empower us in the ministry of the kingdom of God wherever we go. And along with that is the promise that we remember from Jesus. That on the rock of the testimony of Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, he will build his church. And the gates of hell will never stand against it. We are unshaken in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit who holds us fast and binds us to one another. This is what Haggai is talking about. That this new kingdom has come. And now we live and we declare together a simple, singular message. Right after this happens, 
Peter gets up and he starts to preach. He has to because there is an absolute ton of confusion. They start speaking in these other tongues. And at this time, these are tongues that are understood. These were languages that were known. It's not on the screen, but here's with the multitude who's hearing this commotion. Here's what they say. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native tongue, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This kingdom arrived in power the Holy Spirit descending on his church and the nations are exposed to the mighty works of God. A kingdom no longer defined by ethnicity, a a kingdom no longer defined by national borders, but a global, timeless kingdom of God where all the nations, including those of us in the United States, are drawn in and given the good news of Jesus Christ. And Peter gets up and he speaks, and he preaches. And he preaches in the power of the Spirit so effectively that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who were around at the time. And then they went back and they began to share the gospel where they were. And the entirety of Peter's sermon can be summed up by what we find in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descends, and in His power, this becomes the battle cry. Jesus is Lord. That's the message of the church. It's the message of Pentecost. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He empowers us to say those three simple words in the face of every earthly king, in the face of every CEO and tech magnate, in the face of everyone in our own lives, in our own families who would seek to rule over us or take power over us. We are able to say we are free in Christ because Jesus is Lord. That is the saving message of the gospel. And that is the message we bring with us this afternoon to Memorial Park. This is the message we bring to 22 Cedar Street. It is the message that we leave in this space on the final worship service, in the final sermon ever preached from this spot. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your glory, your spirit has descended upon us. And we thank you that for generation after generation, those three words have been declared. 
Lord, this church building has seen so much from a civil war to a depression to world wars. All the amazing advancements of a society. Lord, this building has seen things like women's suffrage. This building has seen things like the civil rights movement. This building has seen things. And amidst it all, one simple declaration, Jesus is Lord. And we are empowered to say this because you gave us your spirit long ago at Pentecost. We are that same Pentecost people filled with your spirit, your glory, your power, filling this new temple, not made with human hands, this new house of which we are all living stones built around the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. We declare Jesus is Lord. We do so by the power of your spirit because of the love that you've shown us in Christ. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every week we partake of the Lord's Supper. And what takes place here is a spiritual marvel. Jesus Christ, by his spirit, communes with our spirits here. He's with us here in and through these elements. No, these elements do not transform from blood or from, or from bread or from juice into actual blood and body. But through these elements, Jesus communes with us and dispenses a grace that sustains us as we follow him out of this place into the next place, into new neighborhoods with the same message that Jesus is Lord. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.